3: in front of a live audience from the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's LiveWire! With writer and activist Megan Phelps roper county judge Ciamara Torres, and comedian Joe Quazala, with music from Chastity Brown and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of LiveWire,
0: Lou! Oh my goodness! Thank you very much, Elena Passarello. And thank you all of you for coming out to the Alberta Rose Theatre in Portland, Oregon. Our theme this week is Leaving a Legacy, uh, which relates to all of our guests. Um, And we asked the crowd here at the Alberta Rose Theatre in Portland to fill out these little questionnaire cards. And the question we posed to the audience was, if you could put one thing on your gravestone, what would it be? Mm-hmm. And I always like to try to think about like what my answer to the audience question would be. And I was pondering it, and I was thinking, that is a really hard yeah. question to answer. Like, who comes up with these questions? <laughs> and then I remembered it was me and the producers. <laughs> <laughs> so my bad, audience. Sorry about that. This is a very hard question. It's especially hard for me because really what this is a question about is like, how do you want people to remember you? Mm-hmm. You know, what do you want people to say about you or think about you when you're gone? And I used to really care about that. Like it was a big deal to me that people remember that I existed. And I used to say that all I wanted when I died was for the world to stop spinning on its (laughs) axis and for everyone who loved me to be buried with me like a pharaoh. That's it. A modest request. You just wanted the pharaoh treatment. That was all. Yeah. And then something changed, I don't know, in the last 10 years or so where I just kind of stopped caring about that sort of thing And now it's like, I just would like to tread as lightly in life as I can, which includes not having people buried with me when I die. (laughs) I guess if I had to put something on there, I would like my, my gravestone to say like, he left things better than he found them. Mm. That's what I would like it to say. The problem is I have in no way lived my life in that manner (laughs) up until this point. I'm 43 years old. I'm like a golfer who has shot a terrible game on the first nine holes. <laughs> I need to get a hole-in-one on every hole for the rest of my life <laughs> to make that true. Like, I got a lot of making up to do on the back nine of this <laughs> life. But I'm going to try to do it, because I guess that's the journey, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like at least it's in growth that I'm okay with the earth still existing after I'm gone from it. Yeah. That, my therapist says that that represents growth anyway. <laughs> what, would your, what would your gravestone say?
1: My gravestone would have to say... I thought I told you I wanted to be cremated. <laughs> Unlike you, I never really thought that I would leave much of a legacy. Not in a bad way. People sound way. really disappointed no, you know, to like, hear that
0: you've given up on life in this way, Elena. You know, I
1: feel like I'm just going like, to do the best I can and then sort of bow out. I'm like the person at the party who you don't remember, but you also don't remember in a bad way. You know what I'd really like? Hmm. Would be no headstone, no epitaph cremated, put into a bunch of little baggies that are then sent to all my friends, and then they can do whatever they want with the little baggie of ashes. And I said that to my partner, David, and he said, I would snort you.
0: Wow, that's love. (laughs) Isn't that true love? Hunter S. Thompson, they blasted him into space, but it cost like a million dollars. We're a public radio show. We could probably get you like 40 feet off the ground.
1: (laughs) You'd like put me in a t-shirt cannon. Yeah,
0: exactly. (laughs) She died as she lived, at halftime of a Trailblazers game. Being shot into the crowd. Uh, What's the audience here at the Alberta Rose saying they want to have on their gravestone?
1: Uh, Here's one from Sammy. Sammy would like on his headstone the frown emoji. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think this brings up a really good point. We are at the stage in human existence where we're going to start seeing emojis on headstones. So, like, I want the juggler if I had to pick one. Some, you know, dingbat is going to pick the poo emoji. Yeah. Frowny for Sammy.
0: Yeah. Do you have an emoji headstone? It would probably be the guy who um, his eyes and tongue are money. <laughs> Not because I'm rich, but I just, I've never been able to use that emoji for any reason. So I figure I might as well go out on that high note.
1: Here's one from Matt. Matt would have on Matt's headstone, I ate all that kale for this. <laughs>
0: Hey, before we get to our first interview with writer and activist Megan Phelps Roper, I just wanted to give you a heads up. Uh, Megan is a former member of the notorious hate-driven cult known as the Westboro Baptist Church, and throughout the interview, Megan will be discussing how the church relied heavily on hate speech to spread their message. Uh, Megan has completely disavowed those practices and those messages, um, but she is going to talk openly about how the church targeted In particular, gay people, but also soldiers and even children. Uh, This might not be an appropriate conversation for all listeners, so we wanted to give you a heads up. All right, on with the show. We have somebody just off stage who took some extreme measures to change the legacy that she was leaving. Her new book, Unfollow, a memoir of loving and leaving the Westboro Baptist Church, details her departure from one of the most hate driven cults in America, uh, which was founded, incidentally, by her grandfather. Please welcome Megan Phelps Roper to Livewire. <laughs> Megan, welcome to the show.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Um, This book is amazing and it's getting really amazing reviews. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, What are your earliest memories as a kid of growing up in this Westboro Baptist Church? Like, what do you remember about it being young?
4: Well, I mean, there's all the normal, you know, childhood memories that you have of, you know, I have a lot of siblings and hanging out with them, playing video games, reading books, playing outside. Um, but then also, in the middle of all of that, you know, standing on a picket line holding signs that said things like, gays are worthy of death. And that was a huge part of our upbringing. Our lives were kind of organized around that picketing ministry, as they call it.
0: And it started because there was an incident. Your grandfather, Fred Phelps, who founded this, uh, there was an incident in a park in Topeka, and, uh, and, and it really set your grandfather off. What happened?
4: Uh, so he was biking through the park with my older brother, who at the time was about four or five years old. And my grandfather would, you know, make it a habit of riding ahead a little bit and then circling back. And one of the times that he circled back, he uh, said that he saw a couple of men trying to lure my brother into the bushes. And then he kind of very soon found out that that Gage Park was uh, a place that was known as a, as a meeting place for gay men. And, yeah, so he started this campaign, this this crusade to clean up Gage Park and then very quickly morphed into this you know, nationwide and then a worldwide anti-gay picketing campaign. Their, their most famous message is God Hates Fags. It's the name of their website.
0: Yeah, as a kid, did any of this seem off to you?
4: No, I mean, everybody that I knew and loved, you know, so the church was started by my grandfather. It's primarily my extended family. And so everybody that I knew and loved was out there t- telling me that this is the most important thing in the world. This is how you love your neighbor. You go out and warn them that their sins will take them to hell. And that if they don't want, you know, bad things to happen to them, then, then they have to obey God. So this was... I felt extremely lucky that, you know, to be part of this, you know, we we had the truth of God and everybody else was either evil or delusional. And so how lucky were we to have this, you know, this, this true message from God?
0: Yeah, I, I didn't grow up in anything nearly as extreme as what you grew up in, but I grew up in a very fundamentalist household. And there's this weird, I don't know, you feel sort of proud of the fact that you're part of... A small group of people that have figured out the real way to get to heaven. It's like a very exclusive club that you create for your little unit of people. And also the thing I think that people who haven't been a part of it might not understand is the real camaraderie that you feel in that family. Even though what's going on is sort of objectively speaking crazy.
4: Yeah, I mean, and the fact that the whole world is against you is taken as a sign that, you know, it's proof of your righteousness. And it really has the effect of kind of really strengthening the bonds within, you know, the group itself. Something that I really miss, actually. There's very little of that in, in the real world, you know. The, the bonds, I feel like, that hold people together are a lot, you know, less, less tight, and, except in places like the military and, you know,
0: other cults. Yeah. <laughs> she said, casually... Uh, We're talking to Megan Phelps Roper. Her new book is Unfollow, a memoir of loving and leaving the Westboro Baptist Church. Um, Let's talk about your grandfather, Fred Phelps. The guy was a real force of nature. How did he become the person that he became in your estimation?
4: I mean, it's hard to say. I think part of it is that he just had—he was an incredibly intelligent, very passionate person. He, he had these things that he believed in, and because he was so smart, he seemed to just have this kind of toxic sense of certainty and his own righteousness, his own way of seeing things. To him, there was no other legitimate way of seeing—you know—any other matter, you know, on any issue. You know, his view was was the the one that should hold the day, should carry the day, and. You know, I didn't realize this until I was writing the book. The picketing ministry started right at the, you know, just after he lost his law license, um, which was the end of his crusade for civil rights for blacks. So he had been a civil rights, you know, pioneer in the state of Kansas for a couple decades. He had, you know, gotten an award from the NAACP. And so the same, you know, passionate belief, you know, in this cause that had led him to this really wonderful work, you know, in civil rights, it was also what, you know, eventually motivated him to... You know, to, you know, to do this campaign against against gays.
0: Was he just personally obsessed with this issue of gay people? Like, was that? And I mean, I'm sure people have asked the question before. Um, was there any sense that he might have been a gay man himself?
4: People always speculated about that, but I really don't think that's the case. Westboro would always say, you know, we focus on gay people because you focus on gay people. You don't have, like, a, a an adulterer's pride parade or a fornicator's pride parade. This is how
0: we... In Portland, they probably have both of those, but... Yeah. <laughs>
4: exception <laughs> I was the Grand
0: marshal of one of them you can guess which one it was
4: <laughs> yeah but I mean so I mean and, and the thing is like so the 90s that was a time when you know the the fight for LGBT rights was really kind of picking up steam in a way that, you know, obviously this huge shift in cultural mores. So in other words, it really was something that the nation was focused on at the time.
0: And it was a way to get maximum attention on this Westboro Baptist Church, which is a teeny tiny church in Topeka, Kansas, right? It's like, and yet it went from being this protest at a local park to showing up at military funerals, showing up at children's funerals, showing up anywhere where the maximum attention would be drawn and holding up these signs that were Un, you know, like they couldn't air them on television half the time because they were so sort of hate-filled in their messaging. When did that shift happen from it being a local thing to being a national thing, and what was it like to be kind of in the eye of that storm for you?
4: I mean, I think it happened pretty quickly. I mean, a a lot of people, you know, there are several points at which, you know, so that when Matthew Shepard was murdered, that was a huge shift that kind of, you know, made Westboro much more of a household name. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the soldiers' funeral protests, those started in 2005, and that was another huge shift. Um, It's strange because, you know, growing up in it, it, this was just normal. It was normal to have cameras, you know, coming and going from our house, you know, documentary filmmakers and local and national um, and international you know, television, you know, news and things like, it it was just, this was just a way of life. This is what God required of us. And it's really interesting, you know, you talk about the hatefulness of it, but at Westboro, they really do frame it as an act of love. So that was something that, you know, people constantly were calling us hateful, but because of the way that we framed it and the way that, you know, we would use these Bible verses, it just it just had the effect of making you feel like, you know, this really is a righteous cause and we're just misunderstood and other people just don't get it.
0: Yeah. Uh, we're talking to Megan Phelps Roper here on LiveWire. Her new book is Unfollow, a memoir of loving and leaving the Westboro Baptist Church. Uh, we'll be back with more in just a moment. Hey, have you subscribed to the LiveWire newsletter yet? Every week, we share live show dates there, as well as peaks from behind the scenes at each episode. The newsletter is also a great way to be part of our engaged community of listeners. You can discover acclaimed authors and thinkers, hilarious stand up comedy, and, of course, live musical acts. You can subscribe today by clicking on Stay Informed over at LiveWireRadio.org. Welcome back to LiveWire Radio from PRI. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Here with Elena Passarello, we are at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. We're talking to writer and activist Megan Phelps Roper. Her latest book is Unfollow, a memoir of loving and leaving the Westboro Baptist Church. Uh, you started out in this, in this church as a young kid, but then you grew up and you were a young adult in it. And this was at the time when Twitter started to be a thing. And your role became the, the sort of Twitter face of the Westboro Baptist Church. Um, how did you get that job and what was that like for you?
4: I got the job because I was the only one looking for it, (laughs) so
0: it was. Granddad wasn't tweeting.
4: (laughs) Not not at that time. Um, No, but I mean, I I read an article about it, and uh, I started talking to other people in the church. And my mom was basically the de facto spokesperson in the church for a long time, and so you know, it seemed like, hey, this is a, a way that we could get our you know get more attention for our message. This is a new avenue for us to propagate this message, and so that's how it started. And I started you know tweeting for the church, and almost immediately. You know, I start you know getting a lot of attention because, again, when the message is that provocative and and m- most people agree that their message is, is so hateful, and they started getting a lot of attention. I would you know kind of tweet celebrities and they would get really mad, and then all of their followers would come after me. So all of that kind of stuff just washed over me, and I didn't you know it wasn't something that had any effect on on my thinking and changing my thinking.
0: Eventually, though, it sort of started to, as you write in the book, all of these people sort of um, debating you in the you know DMs or in public on Twitter, did start to have a sort of effect on you?
4: Yes, it was because there were you know these individuals who, in watching these interactions that I was having, they came to see that I was sincere, that I really believed that this was you know a wonderful thing, this was a godly thing that I was doing. And so they started to they, they got curious. They started asking questions. And really trying to understand where I was coming from so that they could better argue against the positions that I was taking. And over time, they were actually able to find these internal inconsistencies in our theology.
0: Like, what, what's an example of one? So, of the
4: first one came from this guy, this wonderful guy named David Abbott Ball, who ran a blog called Jewlicious, mm-hmm. and he was arguing, I mean, about the sign. Uh, and
0: we should mention that um, much of the ideology of your church, or at least what was represented in the signs, was very anti-Semitic as well.
4: Yes, exactly. So, he's an Orthodox Jew living in Jerusalem at the time, and still now, actually. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so he's he's asking about the sign that's calling for the death penalty for gays, and, you know, I'm arguing, that, you know, Westbrook's position, you know, this is, the, this is the punishment God calls for in the Old Testament, and if the punishment's good enough for God, then it's good enough for us. And, you know, so he's, he starts making two arguments that we always had answers for, but the first one was, you know, say, well, didn't Jesus say, let he who is without sin cast the first stone? And I said, what we always answered, which was, you know, we're not casting stones, we're preaching words. And he said, yeah, but you're calling for the government to cast stones. And that kind of, like, set me on my heels for a second. And as I'm kind of processing that, he says, you know, and also, didn't your mother have a child out of wedlock? And I said, I said, Again, how we always answered, which was yes, and that was sinful, and she repented, so therefore, you know, she doesn't deserve that punishment. And he points out that, you know, if if she had been killed for her sin, she wouldn't have had an opportunity to repent and be forgiven, right? So we had these, you know, kind of canned, sincere answers, um, but not realizing that they were still at odds with these passages and. And so anyway, so that would kind of, you know, blew my mind. It was the first time that I realized that we could be wrong about something. So the fact that my family is, you know, full of lawyers, very intelligent, very analytical. There were always, we spent every day studying the Bible, memorizing Bible verses. So there was always an answer for these questions that people would ask me from the time I was five, you know, as I grew up on the picket line. And this was the first time I didn't have an answer. Anyway, this was, this was the beginning of the end for me. This the realization that we could be wrong.
0: I think that there's uh, your story and the story of this church is so interesting because we find ourselves at a time where there are a lot of people who maybe haven't staked out as an extreme position as the Westboro Baptist Church, but certainly very extreme positions are now being presented in the public discourse in a way that they weren't Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, maybe. And what's interesting to me, Megan, about your experience is that logic is what eventually got you to start changing your mind, but it feels like there are people who are immune to logic particularly on the internet. So how do you talk to those people?
4: Well, so I, I would say that it wasn't just logic. It was also the fact that these arguments were coming from people that I had come to know over time, right? So we were able to build rapport on Twitter in a way that I never I never could IRL, right? Like in physical space with other people, I always knew to keep people at arm's length. So you know, I, I was talking to an anthropologist last year and she explained shame as the concept of, you know, it's the feeling that you get when you have violated the norms of your community. Westboro had been my only community for my whole life. And then I get on Twitter and start having these conversations with people and I start over time to feel like I'm becoming part of another community. You know, and I'm seeing how they're responding to tragedies like when Amy Winehouse passes away, when that, you know, terrible tragedy in Norway where that, you know, crazed, mm-hmm. you know, kills all those kids at the summer camp and and I'm seeing how they're responding and starting to feel ashamed and guilty, like I'm doing something wrong by preaching this message that Westboro, you know, tells me is is divine. So it was both parts of that, I would, I would say. You can't just yell at somebody and like tell them all the logical facts and, and expect them to change their mind. I just don't think as humans, that's not really how we operate. There has to be that rapport. There has to be some sense that they're being heard. So it's, I feel like it's this kind of feedback loop of, of goodwill, you know.
0: Um, we're talking to Megan Phelps Roper about her new book, Unfollow. Um, you and your uh, sister Grace uh, eventually got to the point where you write this open letter. It's basically leaving the church. How terrified were you to publish that? What was it like for you? Because this, you had obviously reached the point where you're like, I'm going to leave. And you knew you were going to be shunned, right? I mean, that was just a given with the way that this church was sort of set up.
4: Yeah, they just, you understand that you are going to be completely cut off from everyone and everything, every part of the church, that they're just not going to have anything to do with you. If if they see you in public, you know, essentially they're just just going to pretend like you don't exist. And that's a really devastating thing when, again, that's that's your whole life. It's the only... It's the only life I'd ever known, and and to be leaving that life and going into a world that I had spent my entire life antagonizing from the age of five, these people that I had literally stood outside of funerals celebrating the homemade bombs that were, you know, killing soldiers and, and holding signs that said things like, pray for more dead kids, and, and with all good intention, I had done those things, and to come to the place where I realized how absolutely devastating and evil that was, and to now be going out into that world and, and knowing they don't have any reason to give me a second chance. They have every reason to hate and despise me. So I felt like I was going to be this fugitive essentially from both the community that I, you know, had, had loved and been part of for so long and, and from the rest of the world. And so, so it was absolutely terrifying. I had no idea how people were going to respond, but I, I just felt like I had to be honest, you know, about, about what had happened.
0: I am sort of curious about what it's like for you, Megan, to be somebody who is now very well known for having been part of something that was really, really damaging to a lot of people's lives. It's a a strange thing to become well known for. What's it like for you to occupy that liminal space? Well, I really
4: hope that what I become known for is not what I did, but what I've been doing to to make amends, you know, and, and to help other people who are in similar environments, help them leave. One of the things that I wrote in that letter was that, you know, we can't change the past. You know, I, I made the choices that I made given the information that I had at the time, and I, I did the best that I could. And now coming to understand how wrong that was... Um, the only thing we can do now going forward is to make better choices and to let those choices speak for themselves. And I, I really hope that the past almost seven years that they have spoken for themselves.
0: Megan Phelps-Roper, everyone. The book is Unfollow. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder. But with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. This is Live Wire Radio from PRI. This week we are talking about leaving a legacy. We asked the audience here at the Alberta Rose Theater if you could put one thing on your gravestone, what would it be? And Elena Passarello, our announcer, you've uh, collected those up. What are you seeing?
3: Here's one from Natalie.
1: Natalie is going to be buried next to her husband. It's important to know that when you learn that her headstone is going to read, I'm with stupid. <laughs> That is
0: like trolling in the afterlife. What else?
1: Here's one from Emmy. On Emmy's tombstone, it's going to read BRB.
0: (laughs) I want to get one that's just that, like, wheel of death that happens on your PC when it's, like, not loading or whatever. Someone will just stand there staring at my gravestone for possibly days. It's like the new eternal flame. Yes. The (laughs) The wheel of death. (laughs) Literally the wheel of death.
1: Here's one from Karen. Karen would like on her headstone Mama tried
0: <laughs>
1: You always have to read out a Merle Haggard reference Yeah, you gotta right?
0: uh, Okay, one more quickly before we move on
1: Do you want to know what the only answer That we had double of is? Yes, I do She had really good hair So two oh. of us want to only be remembered For our good hair days And I'd like to join that I'll be your third,
0: ladies I think Maybe it was you get a plot ladies. together Yeah Like the <laughs> Golden Girls Oh Thank you for being a friend, Elena. Don't get me started. (laughs) (laughs) This is Live Wire Radio from PRI. Our comedian this week was named a comic to watch by Comedy Central, where he'll also have a half-hour special airing this year. He's written for The Onion, Mad Magazine, and this is not a joke. He also knows everything there is to know about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, and he even hosts a podcast about it. Please welcome the very funny Joe Quazala back to Livewire.
5: Hi. Hi. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much. Hi. Uh, My name is Joe Quazala. A little bit about me. My height is 5'7". And uh, here's the deal with being 5'7". I think this is probably true for everybody who's 5'7", across the board. You talk to somebody who's 5'7", and they will tell you this, which is that we're 5'6". We're going to lie to you. We're going to lie to you every single time. Uh, five. I don't know what it is. 5'7", sounds so much taller than 5'6". So I, I don't feel terrible about, you know, the one-inch lie. But I think there is something kind of interesting about being 5'6", though, which is that I'm 5'5". Five, five. <laughs> yeah, come on. You think I'm only going to lie one inch? Get real. Also, I'm not, you know, going to admit to being 5'5". Five, five. That's crazy. First off, it sounds stupid, Right. Like, hey, Joe, how tall are you? Uh, 5'5"? Wait, grow up. <laughs> also, 5'5 five, five is not the height of a man. It's not. 5'5 five, five is more so like the height of a normal-sized dog lying down. <laughs> like, that's about 5'5". Five, five. Uh, the name of that joke is, don't let the audience find out. You're 5'4", so. so that's what's up. It is not fun being my height. It's, em- it's embarrassing sometimes. Like when I'm trying to shop for clothes, I want it to be a normal experience, but I inevitably wind up in the section of the store that's called like, so your tween's got a tood. <laughs> like, come on. I can't tell you how crushing it is to be putting on clothes, trying them out, and you put on a shirt, and it fits perfectly, and then you see on the front, it says, shut up, dad. (laughs) Or like on the back, it says, if you can read this, the Minion's backpack fell off. (laughs) It's terrible. And you can't really lean into being short. That's that'd be weird, you know. Like I'm on I'm on the dating apps. It'd be very weird if I was like, hey, I'm Joe, I'm thirty-two, I don't smoke, I drink occasionally, I'm itty bitty. <laughs> I was a little guy. <laughs> We can go on a date. If you play your cards right, maybe at the end, you can pick me up. (laughs) Hold me. Cradle me. Choose not to vaccinate me. (laughs) Yeah. No surprise, I don't like sports. Um, Just never was into them. And I regret that. I wish I knew something about sports. I tried to, recently I tried to Google the 100 greatest athletes of all time. I thought maybe that could help me learn. Um, Only thing I really found was that there's a lot of sites that have their own list of the 100 greatest athletes. Uh, And a lot of those sites, every one of them is going to have the same athletes, Michael Jordan, Muhammad Ali, you know, Wayne Gretzky. Uh, But you know who else was on every single list? of the 100 greatest athletes of all time. Secretariat. (laughs) The horse. (laughs) The big dumb horse is on every list of the 100 greatest athletes of all time. Now, I don't know, I just feel like if you're gonna put animals on your list, then your list needs to dramatically change. If we're open the floodgates, okay, now your list has to be number 25, greatest athlete of all time, Michael Phelps. We've maybe never seen anyone that fast at swimming, except number 24, any dolphin? <laughs> doesn't, doesn't matter which one. How about the slowest dolphin? 24th greatest athlete of all time. Like, if you're just going to break the rules like that, then who are our greatest athletes? It's like gorilla, cheetah, a boat. If we're going to break the rules, yeah, greatest athlete of all time, big old boat. You heard it here first. Thank you guys so much. I'm Joe Quazala. That's Joe Quazala, everybody, right here on LiveWire.
0: This is LiveWire Radio from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. That is Elena Passarello. We are at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, uh, this week. And, of course, we often bring people from all over the world here to this stage, but... Portland, where we are, the Rose City is also full of interesting people doing interesting things, and we like to meet those people too, we call this segment. New fascinating friends. Let's do that right now. Please welcome Judge Ciamora Torres to (laughs) LiveWire. Okay. uh, You were born in El Salvador. How old were you when you moved to the U.S.? Nine years old. Okay. And you were in the foster system? Not initially. A few years later, yes. What was that experience like for you that's often described as something that can be really, really challenging for a young person?
2: I think it's um, a very traumatic experience that a lot of kids need um, therapy from. I know I did. And um, it rocks your sense of stability because you're moving from home to home, possibly. And so for me, I moved to four different homes until I aged out at 18. So I think um, trying to create stability for yourself as you are um, going from different homes and sometimes different schools, obviously.
0: And yet at some point you, you decided to pursue a law degree. Like, wh- How old were you when you thought I could be a lawyer? I'm from El Salvador originally. I'm in the foster system. But hey, I can actually do something like become a lawyer.
2: Well, it started with college for me, um, and it's a very strange thing because when I was aging out, um, I didn't know where I was going to live. And so while most people are thinking, well, I'm going to go to college and have this amazing experience, um, I was thinking of college, but I was really thinking I need a place to live. And so for me, I was trying to get a dormitory. And so that was
0: like my goal for college. The college was secondary.
2: Yes. Yes. So the weird thing that happened to me is um, somewhere along the way, I tested really high in math and science. So I was recruited by Berkeley. And so it kind of tied into my whole goal of trying
0: to get to a college dorm. (laughs) You're like, California sounds nice. Yeah. So I was like, they'll take me. Was there anybody looking out for you in those days as far as telling you, like, these are the forms to fill out and like, this is how you do this? Or were you inventing this all for yourself on the fly?
2: I think I was inventing it all on my own, but I had someone who's here today. Her name's Jan Bryce. And uh, she was uh, my court-appointed special advocate, Casa through the court system.
0: Oh, my gosh. Can you, you, for folks that don't know, can you explain what that is exactly? Absolutely.
2: They're volunteers who um, take on this endeavor for court cases And they go and visit children at different foster homes and report back to the court as to how they're doing. And they um, talk to schools about how you're doing in school. And then they meet with the kids. And so she was in the background all these years and she was pushing the idea of college and then later law school. And that's actually how I got to law school because when I graduated from college, I was like, I scored. I finished college. I'm done. Yeah. So it, she really made me think about it, like ways that I could give back to, for kids. And that's how I ended up in doing
0: juvenile work. So now you're a county judge in Multnomah County. Correct. How does it compare to sort of what you thought it might be like?
2: I think, I mean, I do juvenile cases. I do family cases. And so obviously um, deciding issues surrounding children. Uh, it's a great responsibility. And um, yes, it weighs on you, and you know that um, you're doing the best you can to make the right decision. I put in three times to be a judge, and so I think that I had enough time to think about this Mm -hmm. position that I was ready to take on that responsibility. Mm -hmm.
0: Do you think you're one of the only judges, at least around here, who also came through the, the juvenile system as a foster kid? You know,
2: it's really interesting because the Oregonian did a profile on me, and so they were trying to find some throughout the country, and they could not find other foster children that had become judges. And interestingly enough, um, right after the article came out, uh, Governor Brown had appointed another judge, Judge McGuire, and she actually went through the foster care system and has been really open about it.
0: Wow. Well, then it's no surprise, I guess, that a theater here in Portland, Milagro Theater, Uh, staged a play, and in fact, they're staging a play currently, about your life. How did that come together? Have you seen it? Is it good? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I was
2: really nervous that no one would go. (laughs) 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 Um, I think it's good. Uh, I'm really proud of what they did. Uh, So the way that it came about was um, the artistic director, Danielle Milan, read the story in the Oregonian, and she said that she read it, and she said, I'm going to make a play out of this. And so they contacted me and asked me if I would allow my story to be told through the play. It, I was hesitant at first because, I mean, it's your life and it's so public. And I'm already uh, getting used to being public as a judge. But they told me that it would be traveling uh, to middle schools and uh, high schools and colleges throughout the country. And, and well, I and thought it was important.
0: There probably wasn't anybody who looked like you and had your experience when you were a kid. To look up to and so the fact that you can be that or your story can be that for some young person I mean that's got to be a really powerful experience for you did they interview you and then like write dialogue that's being delivered by a person that's playing you
2: and um, they hired a playwright who is also from El Salvador who also had a very similar experience um, like mine fleeing the 12-year civil war from El Salvador and so she came out here and interviewed me a few times and, you know, what's so interesting about this play for me is that um, we, I don't feel like we talked that much, but the way she wrote this play is so spot on about my character. And so um, I, I think I was so surprised when I saw it.
0: That, that must have been crazy to sit there in the theater and watch someone portraying you in your life.
2: I, yes, absolutely.
0: <laughs> if they make it a movie... Do you have thoughts on who you want to play you?
2: Well, all my friends say Jennifer Lopez, of course. Yes,
0: I can see that. (laughs) J-Lo?
2: I don't know that I would ever allow that.
0: J-Lo or just anyone? Just the movie. Really?
2: I think a play is plenty.
0: You managed to make this life for yourself and with help from people. um, But you overcame a situation that it proves to be uh, really hard for a lot of people to overcome talking about poverty, being marginalized, being a person of color, what is it that worked out for you? How were you able to do this when so many other people aren't? And how do we get more Judge Torres's in the world as opposed to a lot of people who are really struggling in adulthood because of how their childhood was?
2: So in my particular experience in foster care, I had the opportunity to testify in court and uh, regarding abuse I experienced. And I think that was uh, empowering for me. Also, my personal escape uh, from my reality at the time was books and excelling in school. So I sort of lost myself in schoolwork. And I think the most important thing, and probably one of the hardest things for me too, at that age was really allowing people to help you. Uh, Looking for those helpers, mentors, uh, college counselors. I had a lot of teachers who really empowered me. And um, we're really guiding me to um, excel in school. And, and I think identifying people and letting them in
0: and letting them help you. Well, Judge Torres, uh, if I ever come before you for anything, I hope you'll remember how great this interview went. <laughs> and we appreciate you being our new fascinating friend, Judge CMR Torres, everybody, right here on LiveWire. This is LiveWire from PRI. We actually have to take a quick break, but we are going to be back with much more with Judge Ciamara Torres in just a minute. Stay with us. Special thanks this episode of LiveWire to Amy Mathis of Portland, Oregon. Amy is part of the LiveWire member community and generously supports our show with a donation each month. We're very thankful for Amy's support because it is what allows us to keep this whole thing going. That's a true statement. So uh, big thanks to Amy Mathis for helping us keep LiveWire going. All right, welcome back to LiveWire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. We have Elena Passarello here as well. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland with County Judge Ciamara Torres. Uh, Okay, Judge Torres, we know that you have excellent judgment. It's how you got to be an actual judge. But we were wondering how you are at answering a series of ridiculous questions on a public radio show. And we are about to find out. It's a little segment we call Let's Get Quizzical.
6: Let's get quizzical, quizzical. I want to get quizzical. Let's see if you know your stuff.
0: Yeah. You should walk into that. Is there a rule <laughs> against having walk-in music if you're no, a judge?
2: I'm getting so many ideas. Yeah, it. consider yes. that, definitely. Yes, absolutely.
0: All right, Judge Torres, here's how this is going to work. You are an expert on law and order. Like on the laws and on keeping order. But what about the TV show, Law & Order? (laughs) Are you an expert on the show that has this very memorable theme?
2: I am familiar with it, not an expert on it.
0: Okay, perfect. That's the exact right (laughs) amount of prep for this quiz. We have put together a quiz based on America's favorite television show to watch, On Mute at a Laundromat. Where at any time of the day or night, it is playing. Uh, Judge Torres, if you, if you answer correctly, you will hear this sound. If you answer incorrectly, you will hear this sound.
2: <laughs> I'm going to play it in my courtroom, I think.
0: Okay, good. Uh, Judge Torres, this iconic sound, <laughs> which you hear at the top of each episode of Law & Order, it's a stylized sound of a jail cell locking. Yes. That is what this is supposed to represent. Now, (laughs) which of these is a real recorded element that's actually part of that sound? One of these is a real thing that is buried somewhere in that recording. Is it the sound of a single hummingbird flapping its wings one time, (laughs) slowed down by 500%? Is it a very sharp graphite pencil tapping twice on a freshly opened notebook? Is it 500 Japanese men stomping their feet on a wooden floor during a Kabuki event, or is it a manipulated recording of a Chihuahua barking on its birthday? I'm pretty. The Chihuahua. You are absolutely wrong. <laughs> the right answer is 500 Japanese men stomping their feet on a wooden floor during a Kabuki event.
2: I almost went with that.
0: That's actually in there somewhere. How about this, Jerry Orbach? who played Detective Lenny Briscoe on the original Law and Order. He also did which of the following? Voiced Lumiere, the French candle from the Disney film Beauty and the Beast? Donated his corneas after he died, and they are currently in two other people's eyes? Or originated the role of Billy Flynn in the Broadway musical Chicago? Which of those things did Jerry Orbach from Law and Order do?
2: Um, I'm going to go with the second choice.
0: You're absolutely right, because he did all three of those things. (laughs) Jerry Orbach, multi-talented. All right, one more. Taylor Swift's cat is named after a key element of the Law & Order franchise. Is Taylor Swift's cat named? Handcuffs. Olivia Benson. The Justice System. Or... Executive producer, Dick Wolf.
2: <laughs> I'm gonna say handcuffs.
0: Oh, you are so close and yet totally wrong. It's Olivia Benson. That's the Mariska Hargitay character. She's kind of one of the most famous detectives on Law and Order SVU.
2: I know who she is, but that seems like a really long cat name.
0: I know, you're right. You know, your logic is, is inarguable, Judge Torres. C.M.R. Torres, everyone, right here on LiveWire. This is LiveWire Radio from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarella. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. Our theme this week is Leaving... A legacy, and our musical guest this hour comes to us from Tennessee by way of Minnesota. NPR Music called her songs, a work of brooding soul eloquence, alt rock wiriness, atmospheric pop sweetening, and folk inflected naturalness. I don't know really what any of those words mean, but her music is amazing and you're gonna love her. Please welcome Chastity Brown here on Live Wire.
6: Say one even it's September.
0: Chastity Brown, right here on Livewire. Her album, Silhouette of Sirens, is available now. All right, that's going to do it for our show this week. Thank you to our guests, Megan Phelps Roper, Ciamara Torres, Joe Quazala, and Chastity Brown. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Fully, and the Jupiter Hotel.
3: Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development director. Tim Harkins is our production director. And Christian Sager is our marketing manager. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. And Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is A. Walker Spring, Sam Tucker, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neal Blake. And our on-air mix is by Corey Shreppel. Extra special thanks this week to Carlson Audio.
0: Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokolov. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank members Jed Foster of Auburn, Washington, and Chris Brickner and Carol Lee Brickner of Portland, Oregon. For more information about the show or how you can listen to our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, Head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.